This is CLASS, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America, National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. Technically, this is part one of DSA's session called How Do We Get a New Constitution from the Socialism 2022 Conference in September. This episode will be followed by another in two weeks from the same talk, but the focus in the next episode is on a topic that warrants its own episode. It'll be on non-reformist reforms. The moderator was Mia Inoue. Mia Inoue is a member of the National Political Education Committee and assistant professor of politics at Bard College. The only guest in this episode is Aziz Abrana. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell University. He is the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom and the forthcoming book, The Constitutional Bind, Why a Broken Document Rules America. You'll hear his opening presentation and then a later segment from the Q&A that deserves to be included in this episode. I basically just want to summarize the entire lecture for you because I think Aziz has something insightful to say with every comment. I think this episode is worth listening to two or three times in order to catch everything that he has to say. Part of the density of the content is due to the fact that Aziz is a law professor. This is stuff he's studied a lot and is a lot more familiar with than the rest of us. There's nothing wrong with that. It just takes the rest of us a bit longer to catch up. But I also think it's hard to catch everything that Aziz says because he is questioning ideas that most of us never imagined could be questioned. As Americans, most of us never even considered there was anything wrong with the Constitution, and we never realized it was possible to ask for a new one. And that's just getting started. This kind of political imagination is foundational to the socialist struggle. We need to do a lot more of it. Not only must we creatively conceptualize a plausible alternative to the collapsing society we're currently living in, but we also have to figure out how to share these ideas and our hope for a future with our friends, flatmates, co-workers, and families. So I implore you to give this episode a listen, not only once, but two or three times. to note is that the long-standing challenge for really socialism in America has been how do you build a cross-racial, class-conscious majority that's actually committed to overcoming capitalism? And how do you ensure that that majority can effectively exercise power? So that's like the orienting frame. And for generations of American socialists, and you can think from uh, Debs and Crystal Eastman to Du Bois, uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs, the Panthers, the Constitution was a profound hindrance, both institutionally in terms of the specific devices established by the text, but then also culturally, the role that the Constitution plays in American life, and indeed the very idea of what amounts, to, what constitutes a Constitution. These are huge hindrances, and there's a basic assumption that the only way you're going to effectively engage in power building and have that transformative majority exercise power was if this constitutional system is transcended. And so maybe I think it's useful to kind of work through, well, what were the institutional and cultural hindrances? 
And then at the same time, what's the alternative vision of socialist constitutional politics? Because I think especially at this moment when critique of the constitution has become much more commonplace, it's really useful to juxtapose the differences between liberal constitutional reformism and socialist constitutional transformation. All right, so what are the, the weaknesses institutionally? And this is stuff that Mia has already highlighted, so I'm gonna to try to go through this very quickly and maybe we can discuss it in greater detail in Q&A. But you can think of the socialist critique as saying that there are three major institutional weaknesses of the constitutional system as a mode of organizing political government that all of these weaknesses underscore the extent to which they're deeply undemocratic in ways that hinder and undermine the capacity of working people to exercise power. So one, it's a, you know, fundamentally compromises majority rule. And by this, it's that one of the very few tools that folks that are poor, oppressed, do not have financial means or access to land have is the power of the vote within the context of the political system. It's not the only tool, but it's one of the significant tools. And what the constitutional system does from its very design in the 18th century is it fractures the power of the vote through all of those different elements that were raised. So the structure of the Senate, the Electoral College, gerrymandering in the House, um, the Supreme Court, and then something that's also not emphasized nearly enough how difficult it is to amend the Constitution itself. So the, the Constitution, according to Todd Ginsburg and many other folks, is perhaps the hardest Constitution in the world to amend. And this has a direct effect on who actually wields constitutional decision-making, namely a court system and a set of insulated legal elites, one. Two, it's not just that it undermines majority power, but as Mia highlighted, it facilitates minority rule. And in particular, a very specific form of minority rule. The dominant brand of authoritarianism in American history, not just today, but across American history, has been a brand of white racial authoritarianism. And this is a structure of power fundamentally opposed to multiracial democracy that has been sustained through the structures of the constitutional system. In other words, that these devices actually give far greater power to a minority coalition well beyond its actual majority support in ways that not only undermine the capacity of mass popular claims to, to claim a foothold, but also then entrench those specific political objectives. And we can see that right now through the structure of the system, who ends up on the Supreme Court, and the set of views that end up being presented. If you just take the question about abortion rights, if you had a just a straightforwardly liberal democratic, not even socialist democratic political order, it'd be pretty easy to assume that we'd have reproductive rights in the constitutional system as a constitutional right, because you have over 60% as a durable supermajority that back this. The reason why that's not in the constitutional system right now is because of the fractured and minoritarian dimensions of it, how that then feeds a minority coalition that's able to impose its own views despite the fact that two thirds of the population effectively oppose it. And that this plays out historically. So during the period of slavery, during the defeat of reconstruction, during the high tide of industrial capitalist depression, and even more recently, where you have these institutions that are able to entrench a wealthy and white elite coalition, and that that coalition then is incentivized to view anything like majority rule as a direct threat to itself, and then to treat the instruments of minority power as a way of sustaining its own strength. It's why 
if you look at the collapse of Reconstruction, on the one hand, you can say, well, this is, uh, this is unconstitutional because you had lynchings, acts of extreme violence. But at the same time, it was also facilitated by the very constitutional order that gave power to these minority coalitions in the first place. And then the third thing is that the workaround in the 20th century has been the rise of presidential power. And what we found is that presidential power is very good for engaging in forms of adventurism abroad, so exercising security power overseas, breaking up families at the border in the context of immigration, but it's not very good for actually mobilizing large-scale majorities and implementing long-lasting um, popular position. So we have a, a system that strengthens executive authority in the security context and yet is fundamentally broken when it comes to democratic decision making. That's all a problem. That's a problem that liberals too understand in various ways. But I think one of the distinctive socialist contributions is to say that the problem is not just institutional, it is cultural. And by this I mean that it's the thing that's distinctive about the US is not only do we have a broken constitutional system, but we have one that is venerated as near perfect, as a near perfect distillation of what democratic possibility could be. And that, if you just take a moment and step back, is utterly bizarre. So why is it that perhaps one of the least functioning you know, constitutional systems on the planet is venerated as its ideal type? And the only way you can explain that is by seeing how it connects to the rise really across the 20th century of American global power, of an idea of American exceptionalism, and of an American capitalist project that's viewed as juxtaposed against various forms of tyranny, including Soviet tyranny. And that the Constitution becomes a central embodiment for why American power is not imperial, that the US operates abroad, supposedly consistent with various kinds of constitutional and self-governing principles. That's how it operates domestically, and it produces a deep culture of veneration where to be American, to even conceive of what it means to have an American polity is wrapped up with a text that fundamentally disturbs its public. And it produces an almost internal kind of like psychic conflict within even left liberal Americans today. So you have a liberal analysis that says the constitution is partly responsible for the rise of Trump. But then you also have a liberal analysis by the same folks that say the only thing that can save us from Trump is the Constitution. So Biden or Obama, they give speeches about how democracy is imperiled in front of pictures of James Madison, a slave owner who established a system that's fundamentally inconsistent with democracy. And what the socialist critique articulated was that if you think of the central cultural forces that undermine class conscious mobilizing in Europe, these cultural forces are tied to symbols that sustain elite forms of deference. In other words, class deference to those that have money, land, power. And in Europe, this was, these were the symbols of the crown, of the church. But in the US, perhaps counterintuitively, it's the very symbols and institutions of republicanism and liberal democracy with the constitution chief among them that helps protect, perpetuate a framework of elite deference. And it means that contesting the Constitution is not just about contesting the institutions, but it's about contesting a cultural world that assumes that the only horizon of democratic possibility is the one that basically emerged in the wake of World War II and in the context of the Cold War. That is the sum total of what one can imagine. So what is it that socialists posited instead? They said 
that when liberals think about a constitution, they think about a fundamental law, a set of governing laws that stand above ordinary law, and that they view this constitution and the court as ideal because of the ways in which it limits ordinary political power. And they said instead, no, what a constitution has to be understood as is a sustained political praxis of transformation. In other words, that the whole point is to develop over time, continuously, new arrangements that fundamentally reconstruct the existing institutions of state and economy. And that these new arrangements have to also include the processes of government because that is a central place where existing hierarchies, the status quo, is re-entrenched and sustained. That if the socialist critique in a deep sense is that all of the rules are basically rigged against people that are oppressed. The socialist constitutional argument is that, you know what some of the most central rules are? They're rules in the legal political system. They're not separate from the economic system. These two things are joined and so have to be contested. And they're contested through some of the procedural fixes that liberals imagine, like getting rid of the electoral college. But those procedural fixes are not then to solidify some new fundamental law or to perfect a constitutional system that just needs tweaks. Instead, these procedural fixes are supposed to be about expanding the power of working people to fundamentally transform their society. And so socialists argued for the elimination of the Senate, a move toward a parliamentary system, a much more simplified uh, constitutional amendment process, fundamental transformations to the nature of the court system. And then they tie that to another thing, which is if the argument is not just institutional, but it's symbolic and cultural, what socialists are interested in is building a sovereign revolutionary people that's able to conceive of itself as committed to fundamentally dislodging the nature of the society. For those that were involved in the Panthers or Drum alongside people like the Boggses, this meant a break, a basic decisive break from the modes of racial capitalism and colonialism that had marked the American experience and a commitment to decolonizing society. And so when the Panthers established a revolutionary people's constitutional convention to imagine an alternative world, they included things like police and prison abolition in their new constitutional framework, so not just procedural ideals. They included a system of reparations that applied both domestically but also to people abroad that had been subject to American imperial power. They included land return. They included fundamentally redistributed economic um, provisions like a guaranteed um, job and income. And they also included basic socioeconomic rights like the right to health, housing, education as a precondition of anything like a free society. And they link these two together based on the idea that a constitutional politics has to be about imagining the kind of people and bringing it into existence that could in fact produce something like an emancipatory horizon. And all of this, again, last point, was grounded in this thought that if the system is rigged, then one has to decisively contest institutionally and culturally all of the places in which power basically over time in a repeated fashion goes to those that have and undermines those that do not. The following is an answer Aziz gave to questions that were offered during the Q&A. You can think of what seems like the most kind of mealy-mouthed liberal fix, you know, like whatever it is, like getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate or like yeah. D.C., which so clearly should have a, be a state, becomes a state. It's not possible because of the constitutional system and the roadblocks. 
And I think one of the things that that highlights is that if you actually just think of all of the partial transformative changes in, in American history, the vast majority of them required an organized movement that was willing to engage in norm breaking. Like if you think, of, so how did slavery end? Slavery didn't end through consensual agreement through the institutions of, of Congress. Yeah. What about Reconstruction? The 14th Amendment yeah. was passed in a context in which the South was militarily occupied. Yeah. Even um, the New Deal achievements, the condition for the New Deal achievements was a court packing bill that would have fundamentally transformed the nature of the judiciary. And so this is not to say that this is like an embrace of extra legal means, but it's that there has to be a recognition that because of the nature of the constitutional system, the most significant changes have required breaking from existing norms, but on behalf of a basic principle of multiracial and, and, and multiracial democracy. And so what does that mean for the present? I think it means that all of the things that we might want actually require at the, at, on the ground institution building of a kind of majority that can authorize it. Because if tomorrow Biden decides, you know what, I agree, I'm gonna treat the Senate like a House of Lords, it's not gonna work. It'll be an act of norm breaking, but the truth is it'll produce a kind of rupture that could lead in fundamentally dangerous directions because of the ways it might legitimize a right that is committed basically to straightforward authoritarianism. The only circumstance in which that actually works is if on the ground there's a left that can actually authorize those practices as practices of a popular majority. The reason why the New Deal coalition was succeeded in getting those partial changes is because the New Deal coalition was a, was a massive supermajority of the working class and so was able to democratically authorize the move toward implementing mass democracy. So these things have to be thought together. You have to have like a commitment to these changes a recognition it's probably going to require norm breaking, but an understanding that that norm breaking is only going to be democratically legitimate and actually impose the kind of changes you want if you can if you can power build. And these things are all connected. On Chile, I'll just say this very quickly, that to me, one of the most significant tragedies of the last half century in the long quiescence of the, the American left that we're now seeing a revival of is basically the ways in which the left became contained within its domestic borders. So if we were having this conversation, you know, not just 50 years ago, even as late as like the 1980s, it would be in a context of profound uh, global and transnational solidarity. There'll be conversations about what's happening in El Salvador or in Honduras or in Nicaragua with people that have sustained back and forth interactions, let alone in the 1970s with the great kind of like anti-colonial social movements that stitch together politics here with politics there. And in a way, I think one of the things that's really remarkable about what's going on in Chile, and this is why, you know, fingers crossed it passes, is it's a sign of a mobilized left that can be part of a transnational conversation across borders so that not only do we learn from each other, but we understand that our primary alliances are not to the people in power here that don't have our interests at heart, but to others that face the same kinds of predicaments across borders that are shaped by the same experiences. This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America, National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton LK. If you're inspired by anything we've been talking about, if you think the system is rigged and democracy is the solution, join DSA. Become a member. I've put a link in the show notes 
to DSA's website. If you become a member, someone will put you in touch with your local chapter. If you become a monthly member, a portion of your dues will go to the local chapter. If you're already a member of DSA, please share this episode with your local chapter. Class is intended to be a resource for chapters and members to articulate, apply, and share socialist theory with DSA and the wider working class. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. As you know from listening to other podcasts, this is an important way to get out the word about class. I'd like to thank Sean Larson from Haymarket Books for sharing the recordings from the Socialism Conference, Casey Sticker for sound engineering, theme music, and editing, and thanks to Palmer Conrad for administrative assistance.